The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. So, uh, as we get into the Word this morning, I'm excited to, to share with you some thoughts on a few scriptures, but I want this morning's message to be centered around the, the Word itself. I mean, there's no greater teacher than the Holy Spirit, and there's no greater material than the Word of God, and oftentimes the scripture needs no propping up in, in any way, shape, or form. I mean, there's no need to uh, talk someone into uh, the scripture. The scripture is, as the Word uh, identifies, uh, alive, active, and, and when the Word of God is moving it does its work in our, our hearts and in our minds as you respond to the, the Holy Spirit moving, uh, wonderful things take place. So here's a few things, however, that we're going to see, and this is just meant to uh, uh, give you something to look forward to as we move through the scripture together. One, what we need to know. There, there's a lot of information coming our way. I mean, the internet is identified to us or referred to as the, the information superhighway, right? Have you ever heard that term? I mean, that that's probably a dated term, and I'm probably the last person on earth that still types www before <laughs> I enter any kind of domain into a, 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 a web page there. Uh, but, you know, the information superhighway is, is what has been built and developed. Now, what you've got to ask yourself is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And the answer is yes. I mean, it depends on the information, right? I mean, if you're getting good information, then it's a great thing. If you're getting bad information, then it's a terrible thing. But no matter what, it's a thing, and we need to be aware that it's a big part of our lives. Uh, now, almost every aspect of your living is affected by the information superhighway. Uh, so we're going to find out what we need to know. There's a lot of stuff that you're, you're being told, hey, you should know this, you should know that. Uh, and, and I've got to admit, uh, I have had some very successful jobs thanks to YouTube, right? You know, it's like, how do you do that? Well, I'm going to look up on YouTube. You find, I know there's a few you do the same. Uh, so there's a lot of information coming our way. There's really one thing that we need to know, and the scripture tells us what that is. We'll see that. Uh, another thing we're going to find is why the Holy Spirit is so important. Why the Holy Spirit is so important. Now, there's a little bit of opinion there, obviously, and I'm not offering this as an absolute, but I think you'll agree with me when we get to this point that the Holy Spirit's presence is, is on purpose and intentional. It's not just a byproduct of the work of Jesus Christ on the, on the, cro on the cross, work of Jesus Christ on the cross or the empty tomb. Rather, the Holy Spirit is, is the purpose, the reason for those things. It is the, the result that was intentionally pursued uh, for him to function and be active in your life. And we'll see why he's so important in our lives. Uh, a third thing that we're going to find is why you're a winner. Why you are a winner. And, and that it almost sounds a little TED Talkish, right? I mean, so bear with me because it's not just meant to be chicken soup for the soul. Rather, you're going to see in the scripture why you are a winner. There are things that God has done, very intentional things that God has done in your life, on your behalf, to bring victory in and through your existence. So as we get into the word here, let's find out what we need to know. I want to start, if you have your Bibles, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I want to look at verses 31 and 32 
Uh, we're, we're starting off here identifying what we need to know. Remember, there's a lot of things that are coming your way down that information superhighway. Based on the scripture here, there's one thing that we need to know. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, uh, you're going to see Jesus speaking here. In fact, the verse opens up saying, so Jesus was saying. Now, anytime you see anything like that in the scripture, it's good to pay attention. I don't know uh, what kind of Bible you carry, but th these days, a lot of people have like the red letter Bibles, right? So every time Jesus is talking, it's in a different color. Uh, it's a really great tool to have in your, your Bible there. I mean, identifying the, the, the words that Jesus is speaking is a really good and, and noble thing to, to do. So Jesus is speaking here, and he's saying this. Now, he's saying this uh, to a group of people that are believers, right? So here in verse 31, here's, here's how the verse opens, and we'll kind of lay a foundation here before we just read the whole thing. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. I want to just stop there for a second. He's talking to a group of people who are believers. Now, in this room, not all of us would be of Jewish descent. Some may be, most of us probably not. But in this room, if you are a Christian, you would be a believer. You would be, no matter where you came from or what your descent is, you are a Christian. You have called upon the name of Jesus. You have received God's gift of, of salvation. We don't really need to break that down. But you can see here that Jesus is speaking to believers. Now, one of the things that I think is really awesome to do is to understand that none of the scripture is casual. It's not like this is just in the word and it's kind of filler, you know. Like maybe the paragraph didn't look right, so let's try to add a little bit to that line there and kind of even it out. I mean, this is intentional. I mean, the word is revealing to us that Jesus talking is talking, and he's not talking to a group of unbelievers who need to be convinced or converted, but he's talking to a group of believers who have been convinced and have been converted. So I can take this passage of scripture and I can say this without actually changing the meaning. So Jesus was talking to Christians. Okay, so I'm, I'm now a part of this group that Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to me. So as we get to this, listen to these words as he begins to, to speak to you and as he begins to speak to me as believers. So Jesus was saying to the believers... If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's an interesting passage of scripture. I mean, I think for a lot of us, there's this thought or this concept that becoming a Christian uh, equals this liberty or freedom that will be uh, prevailing in every aspect of your life. Well, the availability for that liberty and freedom is absolute. I mean, there is no denying it. Now, the measure of which that affects our life is deeply affected by choices and decisions that we make. That's no different than with my everyday living uh, in the natural. If I choose to do things that are, are right and legal, uh, I will, will walk as a free citizen. If I make choices and decisions to do corrupt things and criminal activities, I will forfeit those rights and, and my freedom. And what you're seeing Jesus say here is that there is a call on our lives to continue to, to have a, an everyday awareness of a specific uh, uh, information pool, and that information pool will result in freedom. That information pool in this case is truth. 
I mean, consider what he's saying here. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you just take this as, as a sentence or a statement, it speaks volumes. But when you begin to look at the individual words that make up this statement, it starts to have some real heft and depth to it. I mean, consider it word by word as we begin. If, if is a conditional word, right? I mean, if is introducing condition, meaning that this is a choice or a decision. That if this choice or decision is established one direction, it'll get one result. If it's established another direction, it'll get another result. You're having it uh, introduced as a condition. If you is identifying direction. Now, this condition is being directed to you. Not them, not they, but you. Continue, meaning like this is ongoing, not a one-time thing, not just something that you sign up for and then have the benefit for, but rather this is a lifestyle. This is meant to be something that is, is entered into and then continued in or, or to be stretched in, in consistency, uh, represented repetitively through choices, decisions, activities, thoughts, you name it. In, in is a great word. I mean, it, it's not just about something being in existence, but rather it's about something uh, being entered into. If I, this building is here, it's undeniable, but you that are sitting here present came in. A lot of people are driving by, but you came in. So as you see this, this, these words in their depth that Jesus is putting condition, he's putting uh, the direction, he's putting what it means to continue, and then in, meaning this is something that, that is, is not just observed, but it's something that's operated in. And then the word my. Now he's, he's adding a, a possession in a direction, and now he's, he's going to identify what the possession is, the word, his instruction, his counsel. That next word is then. Now you're getting to the result, right? It starts with if, it starts with condition, and now you have then. Now here comes the result of meeting said condition. R. R is absolute. Consider the alternatives to R that would not mean the same absolute thing as the word R. Like words like might, or should, or could. If you do this, then you might. If you do this, then you could. If you do this, then you should. But rather, you see this condition. When this condition is met, then you are. Truly being an emphasis on this. Also identifying that there is an, an opposite or an alternative that might look close but not actually be accurate. There could be a, a false sense rather than a true sense of this state of being. Disciples. Disciples meaning a follower of or a representation of, of being a possessive word. And then now this last word that I want to use is mine, identifying who is having this possession. And in this case, that's Jesus. I mean, I don't want to, to read everything like this because it would be tedious and monotonous and it would just become long-winded. But when you start to break down the words you start to understand what the word or the scripture is communicating to us. Jesus is telling us something that's really important here. It's obviously priority. It's the difference between having freedom and losing freedom. Now, for, for us here, that is a, a massive situation. There, there are, are massive results at stake here, and it's in a state of being conditional. It could go one way or it could go the other way based on the condition that Jesus has set up here. Now, if I woke up every day 
with an understanding of the severity of this, I would wake up and I would intentionally desire to live a life that has freedom in it. And based on this passage of scripture, that would involve the pursuit of continuing in the words of Jesus Christ. Knowing that my freedom is at stake, knowing that liberty is at stake, knowing that that the results of choices and decisions have effects. Now, make no mistake, I am not saying that salvation or eternity, this is not a message about whether or not there is any eternal security in any way, shape, or form. This isn't to inspire debate. Rather, it is more in line with the cause and the effect of everyday actions and words. Should I choose to do things the way that Jesus instructs, I will get the resulted promised freedom. Should I choose to do things any other way, my way, the internet's way, a certain people group's way, or, or, or my boss's way, or anybody else's way that's outside of the way that Jesus would instruct, I should not expect those same results. I mean, we see something really powerful here, something really important, something that results in freedom, something that results in liberty, and it's the continuation of following in the instruction of Jesus Christ. So that then leads me to to ask this question. I mean, what is it that makes this act so effective? If that's the result, if the result is freedom, what is it that makes this such a powerful thing? I mean, as Jesus is talking here, he talks about continuing in his word, but then he identifies what that accomplishes. To continue in his word is to know the truth. And then to know the truth is what results in this freedom. So I have to ask myself then, what is truth? What is the truth? And in the world that we live in today, I have been given so much information to sort through. Some of it leads this way, some of it leads that way. It's obvious because it is so diverse in its direction that it can't all be truth. So what is truth? I want to give you a passage of scripture that needs to shift that question. The the question may be what is truth, but you're not going to get a what answer. Rather, you're going to get a who answer I want to give you John 14.6 as a passage of scripture to stand on. If you go to John 14.6, here's what you find. You find Jesus speaking once again, and he's declaring his identity, revealing his identity to to you and to me so that we can not only understand uh, who he is, but how he functions and operates in our lives and in the world. Jesus stands and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So now I'm beginning to understand that this truth that is so powerful that it results in liberty, this truth that is so powerful that results in freedom, isn't a what at all. Asking the question, well, what is the truth, is is the question that can be asked in any given situation, but the result is going to be more in line with who is the truth. As we ask, what is the truth, we need to be asking, well, who is Jesus? And this is a really powerful concept to try to wrap one's mind around, and it can be a real difficult process because so much of the information that we're given in any situation or circumstance is relative. I mean, this is a small group of people, and this small group of people is a group of people that uh, have shared beliefs and shared convictions, but yet I can promise you probably no two of us are absolutely alike. 
I mean, if we were to, to have conversations about different aspects of life, we'd probably find a tremendous amount of differences. And even though we, we share the same uh, foundational convictions as it concerns the scripture, there are going to be places where we would differ and, and differ greatly. I had a, a family one time that met with me and, and they had a conversation about how they, well, they could no longer go to church here because uh, the, the, you know, this church believes this and, and they don't believe that. And I listened to them, and, and I, you know, there's, a, there's, there's a, a temptation there to try to, to justify why you believe what you believe, and that's the bait that leads to argument, you know. So really the, the, the statement that, that was made in response to that was this. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that believe differently, but that doesn't have to divide us. So all of the sudden here, when you're not taking the bait to, to throw rocks at each other and to try to decide who's right and who's wrong, what you do is you open the door then for something great to take place. And that greatness is, is something that results from the introduction of Jesus or really the opportunity for truth. When it's not me versus you, we open up the door for, for Jesus to come in and function and prevail. And, and that's really what we need a large dose of today in really every aspect of living, whether it's the highest levels of government, whether it's in, in households. I mean, you know, the, the number one box checked off on divorce papers is irreconcilable differences. It means we couldn't come to a point where we agreed, so we separated. And I, I remember the, the conversation with the family who, who was leaving because they didn't believe the same way. And I just thought, what a shame. Statistically now, that is irreconcilable differences. And even though there might be different views or opinions, they don't have to be divisive. If we are all convinced that there is one truth, then let's let Jesus work. I don't believe the same way today that I did five years ago. And let me tell you something, five years from now, I'll probably believe different than I do right now. Now, not on anything foundational, not on that Jesus is the Son of God, not on that he was born of a virgin and that he lived a sinless life. And that he, I mean, all of those doctrines are stable and sound, but my views and my convictions have changed with a lot of different things. Some of them life experience, right? I mean, do you remember when you were young and knew everything? Well, now I'm old and know very little. I mean, it's just an interesting thing to consider. And when we're able to examine ourselves and look at things like that, it really opens the door for maturity to prevail. Arguing, bickering, backbiting, rock throwing, and division are very immature ways to handle differences. And it's really not Christ-like. Can you imagine if Jesus handled differences like that? I think the world would have been destroyed in, in, in hailstones of fire a long time ago. But rather opening up the opportunity for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to go to work in each one of us is a really wonderful thing. And when you consider even deeper what that is, it's opening up the door for truth to prevail. And I've sat down in, in a lot of different meetings, you know, over the years with, with uh, you might call them counseling appointments or, or, you know, things like that that exist in church. And, and when, we, when we'll sit down and pray, and we don't open every meeting with prayer, but it's, it's not a bad idea to do that. And as we, we would pray about the meeting, generally the prayer would be, Father, let truth prevail. Let truth prevail. And let me tell you what that mentality and that concept does. It, it disarms that any one person is here to win an argument. 
Now, there's no way that we can both be right, uh, but there is a way that we can both be wrong. And God, we want you to, to prevail. So I'm not here to convince them of anything, and I'm not going to, to sit here and, and, and trust that they're here to convince me of something. How about this? How about we're here to be led by you? Whether that means they change and become more like me, or I change and become more like them, let us just both change and be more like you. Let truth prevail. And this is a really wonderful mentality to have because it sets us free from what I just referred to, and I mean, it's just my re reference, the, the good and bad trap, the good versus evil trap, which is really kind of an elementary doctrine. I mean, a, a lot of people can get their theology from the old Looney Tunes cartoons, right? You remember those? You can't show those cartoons anymore today, right? You remember how violent they were? I think about what I sat and watched as a kid and just thought, oh my gosh, unbelievable. Do you remember the Popeye cartoons? A guy that ate spinach and got real strong, you know. I mean, you watch, though, it's two men beating each other over a woman. Like, and, and that's how they entertained us as kids. Like, here, young man, this isn't chauvinistic or violent at all, right? <laughs> She's property, just go beat him up and you'll win the girl. boy. I mean, I guess maybe they wanted us to eat spinach or something. I, I don't know. But all of those cartoons, the, 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 the amount of dynamite they used was unbelievable, right? But you can remember, if you, if you remember back in those, you know, they would have their little, little angel on the right shoulder and little devil on the left shoulder, and they'd be bickering back and forth, and one of them would win out in the end and, and things like that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of things that exist in our thinking that are... are really when you think about them and consider them, not, not really less silly than that. But, but our world is, is defined by relative things, unfortunately, and, and good versus evil becomes this endless debate that becomes very divisive. Very divisive. I don't really know a lot of people. I know there are evil people. There are wicked people. There are people that, that know they are causing harm. But I don't really know a, a lot of people that are wired that way. There are a lot of people that are doing the wrong thing, but they're doing it with good intentions. Now, that doesn't make what they do right at all. In fact, doing the wrong thing with good intentions describes a big chunk of, of my life as it concerns things like marriage. There have been things I did wrong, but I meant well, right? Uh, there have been things that, that I've done wrong in, in business or in work, but I meant well when I did it. I sure didn't mean any harm by it. Those are things that just happen. But that can, that can be a big part of an individual's life where the intentions are good, but, but what actually is accomplished is, is not good. So good or bad is, is a real relative thing. What I think is good, you might not think is good. What I think is bad, you might not think is bad. I mean, this is a real trap. And we've talked about this before in other messages because it applies in, in a lot of things across the board. Uh, here's, here's a passage of scripture that I think is real interesting to consider as it concerns this good versus evil trap. And it comes from the, the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Isaiah 5 verse 20. That starts off with the word woe. Now we don't really use that word today, I mean... It's a word that indicates uh, uh, negativity at the highest level that can possibly be verbalized. Like this is a bad thing. And, and even just the word bad is, is too watered down 
If you, can, if you can take that and put it on steroids 10 times over, you might get woe, right? So it's a real negative thing. Woe to those. So it's real bad for those who call evil good and good evil. And woe to those that substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, this is a real problem. And, and now, here's the trap that we could fall into. Who defines what's good and what's bad? Who defines what's light and what's dark? Who defines what's sweet and what's bitter? I mean, if, if, if it's me, then, then great. If it's you, I got a problem with that. That's kind of our mentality, right? And this passage of Scripture isn't meant to set us up for failure, to, to have us debating and arguing and dividing over relative things. Rather, this passage of Scripture is meant to identify that if we're finding ourselves debating over relative things, woe to us. There is good and there is bad. There is sweet, there is bitter, there is light and there is darkness. But if we sit and try to debate what's what, we will spin our wheels. This is a passage of Scripture that's meant to snap us out of, of a fruitless mentality, to pull us off of a treadmill leading to nowhere and put us in a position to actually accomplish something. To not sit and debate things that are relative, but rather to understand what we ought to look at. And that passage of Scripture has inspired me personally to see things differently. And, and, and I've shared this before, if it sounds a little familiar, and I'll definitely share it again. But I try not to see things in good or evil anymore. Now, I'm not denying that there's good, and I'm not denying that there's evil, but I try not to define by that. Rather, I think God has revealed to us in the Scripture how we ought to define things, how we ought to view things. The Scripture's telling us it's going to be problematic if we define things by good and evil. But let me give you a couple of passages of Scripture here and reveal to you how we ought to define them. Uh, one from the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, verse 44. It speaks of the devil, okay? So as Jesus is talking about Satan, he says these words. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. And whenever he speaks, he's a lie. And he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. I don't want to dissect that verse. I want to just let it hang there for a minute. And I want to give you another passage of Scripture. I told you before we're going to find out why the Holy Spirit is so important. You'll find it right here in John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, that is, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, in this case from Jesus, he'll speak to you, and he will disclose to you those things that are to come. So our temptation is to, to interpret and define things by good and by evil, but what the word is showing us is that there is truth and there is lie. That Satan is the father of lies, and that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. I mean, it's really interesting to me that John 8, 44, that verse that we just read that said Satan's the father of lies, doesn't say that Satan is the father of evil, right? I mean, I would have no problem with that if that's what it said. It wouldn't spark some great debate. I don't think any of us think that, that Satan and his activities and his action in the world are not evil. His, his actions in the world, excuse me, are not evil. Uh, but, but that's not how the Bible identifies him. The Bible identifies him as the father of of lies. 
And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is not identified as the Spirit of good. If it did, I really wouldn't have any problem with that either. I wouldn't debate that because when I think of the work of the Holy Spirit, I think of, of, of goodness and, and good things. In fact, the scripture in, in Acts chapter 10 identifies Jesus as being anointed with the Holy Ghost and with the power of God and then going about doing good, healing those who were oppressed by the devil. So I would have no problem personally with the devil being identified as the father of evil and the Holy Spirit being identified as the spirit of good, but the scripture has gone out of its way to not define them as those things, but rather to define them as the devil being the father of lies and the Holy Spirit being the spirit of truth. I have to ask myself why. I want to offer this to you as a thought because evil and good are relative. But truth and lie are not. Evil and good are relative, uh, depending on, on where you're at, depending on where you came from, depending on where you're going, depending on, on a number of variable factors. What's evil and what's good could be debated, but truth and lie cannot. Something is either true or it's a lie. They're absolute. And I love that the Bible doesn't set us up for the world's biggest rock chunking contest, but the word sets us up to walk in absolutes. I mean, this changes the way that I see things. It changes the way that I pray. It changes the way that I approach conflict even, where instead of it being about, uh, a, I'm going to be a force for good and I'm going to vanquish all evil. Well, those are relative things. How about this? How about the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, be a people led by the spirit of truth? Let's become those that seek and, and, and are committed to living out and walking in truth. It's the ultimate protection from walking in deception, from walking in and in falling into uh, error. If we can be led and guided by truth at all times, you will not fail. It's the reason why Jesus could say that if you continue in my word, you'll truly be disciples of mine, you'll know the truth, and then the truth will result in absolute freedom. No captivity, no corruption. I want to see the world in truth. I want to be able to identify the lies. I want to be able to identify the truth. I want to be able to reject the lies, and I want to be able to embrace the truth. I want to protect the freedom that God paid the highest price to bring into my life and to your life. I want to become an individual that sees, celebrates, and prioritizes truth in every aspect of my life. It does something great and, and, and powerful when this takes place. It has an effect on, on our lives in such a, a profound and powerful way. You can see the effect and the power when you can see how much truth is, is attacked. I mean, there are some absolute truths that, that God has revealed to the world, that God has revealed to, to, uh, to us through the word, through the confirmation of the Holy Spirit, that are lived out through history. There's no doubt about it. My sons are, are of an age where it's time to begin to teach them why we believe what we believe. If you don't know why you believe what you believe, you can easily be led astray and be told that you were brainwashed, you were indoctrinated, you, you, you weren't given an opportunity to, to think for yourself. We had a conversation the other day about other religions and about Christianity, and, and I can tell you one of the things that I told them. One thing that we have that no one else has in the Judeo-Christian faith is prophecy. 
that has been fulfilled. If you want evidence of that, look at the nation of Israel. If you want evidence of that, look at at the, the history that we see when you have the book of Isaiah identifying the birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem and you have history bearing witness to that. God has called the names of kings years and decades before they were put into power and did the work that he prophesied they would do. Prophecy is such tremendous evidence that the scripture is legit. I'm not a believer today because my parents were, though my parents were and I grew up in church. I'm a believer today because I've read that and it's true. (laughs) It lines up with history. It lines up with, with the things that have come to pass. It lines up with the things that are happening right now. And it's hard to deny when it's got such an accurate track record that that won't continue into the future. And the things that are promised to come won't come to pass. So when you see the scripture and identify what it is, you can see that truth has been revealed to us. Jesus himself standing as the revelation of truth because he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can see why truth is under such tremendous attack. Truth does something powerful. Jesus prayed and he prayed for you. You'll find that prayer in John chapter 17. If you're ever having like your worst day ever, just read John chapter 17 and think, this is my king. And because of his love and his devotion to my well-being, this is his prayer for me. And included in this prayer that he prayed for you, he makes this statement revealing the power of truth. He's speaking to God and he's talking to God about all the, the, the garbage and the nonsense and the, 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 the evils of the world, the woes of the world. And, and he identifies something really powerful. And again, not falling into the trap of, of good and evil, but rather identifying the absolute of truth versus lie. Jesus prays for you and he prays and asks God to do this knowing that you're in this world that's filled with so many variables and so much that would be uh, uh, ambiguous and debatable and so much that would be corrupt at its core, Jesus asks for God to do something. In John chapter 17, verse 17, he asks God to sanctify you. Sanctify means set apart. Make you different. Make you different from the rest of the world, the rest of the world that is absolutely corruptible, the rest of the world that is easily led astray. Jesus asks for God to set you apart, to sanctify you. I'll give you one guess as to how he asks God to do that. Let me use his words. Father, sanctify them in truth. For your word is truth. Now I know why truth is under such attack. Truth is the catalyst for sanctification in my life. No wonder truth is, is, there's around every corner, there's an attempt to cut it off. It's what makes me different from the rest of the world. Without truth, I'm just like everyone else, just like everything else. I'm just as corruptible as one who has rejected truth in the first place. I need God's truth in my life in order to live the sanctified life that Jesus brings to me. Truth. 
I want to give you a few things here. I, these are meant to be encouragements. You know, I mean, we, we know the world we live in. Anyone with a, a, an internet connection is well aware of, of the, the woes of the flood of information, whether it be good information or bad information. The one thing that we need is truth so that we can divide those things rightly, not be divided by them, but that we can understand what needs to be embraced and what needs to be rejected. Here's a, a few things that a sanctified mind thinks or is aware of. I want to give these to you. They're not in any particular order. But I've come to uh, situations or circumstances where I've realized that if I'm not careful, I'll be led by lies. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt powerless? Where you just really felt like you didn't have an effect? I mean, maybe the thing that you faced or you dealt with was... was seemingly large or, or maybe the thing that you were dealing with had, had been such a, a prevalent part of your life for so long that you thought there's really nothing you can do about it, be careful. That's a lie. And our minds are meant to be sanctified and set apart by truth. So here's a thought that a sanctified mind will think. I'll give it to you from the scripture, Luke 10, 19. Jesus speaking, speaking to you, behold, I've given you authority. Authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and nothing will injure you. I give you authority to trample on all of the powers of darkness. What a great thing to think. I'll give you an example really quickly, and like most pastors, you know, you only have so many stories, so you have to tell them more than once. But I remember one of the first times ministering in an African nation that suffers such horrible corruption, it's absolutely depressing. You, you, you step foot on the land and you can feel the oppression, the absence of any patriotism or any kind of love for country because of the corruption at the highest levels. It's unbelievable. But to stand on that soil, you're immediately met with the oppression that there's really nothing you can do about it. I remember preaching a message, and, and when you're a guest speaker in a foreign country, you know, you go there with your prepared message, and you're just wanting to really put on a good performance. And I broke every rule in the put on a good performance rule book, because about halfway into the message, I realized this is an absolute waste of time. I just said, I want to stop that for a second. I want to ask you to stand with me, and, and let's, let's pray. And let's, I'm not asking you to do that right now. <laughs> let's, let's pray and let's, let's bind the spirit of corruption that's over this nation. I'm telling a story here, but I'm okay with all of these amens because we could probably do that right here and now. And, and everyone, you know, put their stuff up and they stood up, you know, and it was a little different than the normal guest thing. And we began to pray, and oh my goodness, it was, it was, this, it was like hearing a, a river flowing, all the voices rising up. You know. And then there comes a time when it's over. And, you know, the, the roof didn't tear off the building and angels flood in or anything like that. It was just, it was just over. And we ended the service and, and we went home. The next day, however, there was a headline in the newspaper about how the police had raided a high official's office and arrested him publicly for the billions that he had stolen from the government. And in all of the arrogance, his daughter stood and slapped the chief of police as he was doing these things. That, that, that arrogant spirit of corruption was being exposed and action was being taken. Now, one of the things that I've come to know is, is that, you know, anyone could stand and say, well, your prayers didn't make that happen. 
I'd say prove they didn't. I'm not trying to prove they did, but I guarantee you, you can't prove they didn't. So I'm, a, a, a mind that's sanctified never feels too small. But it's sanctified by that truth. Behold, God's given me authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the powers of darkness. That's a sanctified mind. Uh, here's another one. Uh, uh, another way a, a sanctified mind thinks. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. I'll just read it to you. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common in God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. Sanctified mind. I've said in a lot of meetings where someone was swept away by temptation, swept, I, you know, a refusal to take individual responsibility for actions because it was just too great. That's a lie. It's just a lie. And I wouldn't sit and throw rocks and shame or, or attempt to beat someone down in that situation, but I would want to lead them out of that lie. Because God hasn't paid the highest price for us to throw us to the wolves. But rather, he's opened up a door for victory no matter what we face. Whether we be tempted to cheat, whether we be tempted to lie, whether we be tempted to steal, that temptation has a way out. And the Holy Spirit is present to lead us out. That's the, the way that a sanctified mind thinks. And it's important for us to adopt these truths in order that we live a sanctified life. That we live out Jesus' prayer, his request that we be sanctified in truth. Let me give you a, a, a last one here. Now, it's not like there's three of these and we uncovered the big three. You're going to find a lot of these in the scripture. These are just a few that are meant to inspire and encourage to dig deep and, and to see these promises and to see uh, these, these, these truths that are in the Scripture so that you can latch on to them and, and take them to the God in prayer. And Father, I want to live a sanctified life. Let that truth that you've given me authority have an effect on me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. It reads like this. I mentioned to you before one of the things we're going to find is why you are a winner. Here's why you're a winner right here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, and you have overcome because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Are you ever tempted to buy into thoughts that you're a loser? Let me tell you something. I've, I've, I've fought those things. And they come at the worst time. The Bible calls them opportune times. Times where, where there's, there's difficulty or trial or, or weakness and, and you're tired, you're exhausted. But the thought that you're a loser is an absolute lie. Here's the truth that's meant to sanctify your mind. You are from God. You have his DNA in your spirit. You are not just purchased by him, but rather you are from him. And you'll win because greater is him who is in you than the one that's in the world. I mean, what if that took a hold of your mind and what if it took root in your heart? And what if that was the filter everything you dealt with had to pass through? That's God's design. 
Every problem, every situation, every circumstance has to pass through the filter that one, I'm from God, two, I'm a winner, and three, Jesus Christ inside of me is bigger than any issue I'm ever going to face in my entire life. Let me tell you something, that filters out everything. And there's nothing that we can't do when that sanctified thinking is part of our lives. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Oh, I want to be sanctified in truth. I want to pray and I want to ask God to do a work in our, our, our minds this morning. And there's no greater or more powerful minister in the room than the Holy Spirit. He's present right here, right now to do a work inside our lives, uh, on, on our hearts, on our minds, to have an impact and effect on who we are. Because God is raising us up. The word promises that he, that's Jesus, who began a good work in us, will continue that work. And that's why we're here, for that continued work of Jesus in our lives. And I want to see that work continue this morning through that promised sanctification, that I would begin to see God's word, not just as a, a, a moral discipline or, or a, a Christian devotion, but that I would see God's word as the sanctifying power to set me apart from the rest of the world. That I would begin to see his word as the truth that is meant to set me free from that open door to corruption. And that that sanctification might have its place in my mind and in my heart to lead me through every temptation, to lead me through every moment in which a corrupt thought of inferiority would attempt to prevail. But that I myself, that you would see our lives the way that God has seen us and empowered us with the authority of Jesus, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and with the identification of his greatness. I want to pray and I want to ask God for that work here and now. You're welcome to be in a, a state of agreement or, or uh, simply a, a, a state of receiving. Father, we bless your name and we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the present anointing of the Holy Spirit. We rejoice, Father, in the anointing that is near, simply to affirm in our hearts and to confirm in our minds that you're working, that you're leading us and guiding us, that we're not simply wandering through life, but that you have intentionally brought us to this place in this moment for this thing. This thing that is identified as sanctification, let your word be revealed to us as the catalyst for that wonderful truth that sets us apart for the rest of, from the rest of the world for your glory, for your kingdom, for the purpose and the attention that you've called us to. We give you thanks, Father, for the wonders of your word. And as we stand in a, a, a state of agreement in prayer, I speak for myself and I pray for the congregation. Let our hearts and our minds be surrendered to truth. Let all that would be relative be surrendered. Let us not be led with a mentality that's divisive 
But let us simply trust and know that your truth is all that matters. That our mentality would not be us versus them, but our mentality would be you. That our prayers would be, Father, let truth prevail. Let truth prevail in the things that we deal with and the things that we face directly. Let truth prevail in the, the issues of the world that we live in. Let truth prevail. And let our lives testify of the wonders and the power of your truth. That when the world would look upon us, they truly would see the wonders of sanctification. A body of believers who have been set apart that appear and function so differently than the rest of the world that it would be evangelistic. We bless your name and we thank you for the wonderful and mighty work that you do on our behalf. And we receive that work in the mighty name of Jesus. Be honored and glorified as we live out our lives sanctified by truth. We bless your name and we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. And all the saints declared, Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at Church.